Sometimes you lose the race, you're getting a new team leader. Tonight, what happens now? BC's future following an historic election that's not quite over yet. Plus, the massive search for a father and son who've gone missing, foraging for mushrooms. And... You know, I go through, I just keep ripping until I find something that, oh, that's the feeling. We meet the composer responsible for the sound of BC's most watched news. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with breaking news. The only BC school dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak is now being closed for the next 10 days. Parents of students at L'Ecole de Lance au Sable in Kelowna received an email today saying the Francophone school will be shut until November 4th. An outbreak was declared last week and Interior Health has since confirmed 11 positive cases connected to the school. About 160 people may have been exposed. They began two weeks of self-isolation when the outbreak was first declared. Now, school administration says after an analysis of the school population and staff resources, it has no choice but to temporarily close the entire school. This is BC's first and only school closure due to COVID-19. And the Fraser Health Authority has declared an outbreak at a long-term care facility in New Westminster. It says a staff member at Queen's Park Care Centre is now isolating at home after testing positive for COVID-19. A rapid response team is now on site. Enhanced control measures have been put in place and contact tracing is underway. It was an election few wanted because of COVID-19, but it appears John Horgan's handling of the pandemic helped his party win big. Even with hundreds of thousands of mail-in ballots still to be counted, voters have given him a majority mandate. Grace Key begins our coverage on Decision BC with just how big the orange wave was in our province. They took a gamble calling a snap election during a pandemic, but it paid off with the largest NDP victory in BC history. BC has voted and a majority has been called, but there are many, many hundreds of thousands of votes yet to be counted. Preliminary results show the NDP gained 14 seats, going from a 41-seat minority to a 55-seat majority. The reason uh, our message resonated in Richmond, it resonated in, in, in Langley, is because we were talking about things that matter to those families. Uh, seniors care, child care, education, health care, transportation. Those were the issues that were important to those, uh, those uh, British Columbians, and, and that's why they voted for our team. The orange wave took over many liberal strongholds like Richmond, Langley and the North Shore. But some of the biggest surprises were farther out in the Fraser Valley. If you had told me that they were going to take ridings in Langley and Chilliwack, I would have said that you were crazy. But as the campaign uh, progressed and we saw, A, how well the NDP was doing and frankly the liberals imploding in the lower mainland, I started to think that some of these Fraser Valley seats and other metro seats were in play. And indeed they were. They, and, and the NDP really ran the table not only in Richmond, but in Langley, uh, North Vancouver, Seymour. Um, and it was a combination of the NDP doing very well 
and own goals on the part of the Liberals. Where NDP fell short was in rural BC, where Horgan says he needs to do more work to win over those communities. Having a majority government uh, will allow me to get out of Victoria. I've been, as you know, uh, tied in the legislature for big chunks of the year, and, and I'll be able to travel now more freely to other parts of British Columbia and be the spokesperson for the issues that we're bringing forward that, that will benefit rural British Columbia. The NDP head back to work, no longer having to lean on the Greens for support. Their priority continues to be guiding the province through the pandemic. Grace Key, Global News. Now to the Liberals and some breaking news. Party leader Andrew Wilkinson posted on social media late this afternoon that he had finally conceded the election to the NDP. That's as he faces a reckoning within his own party and a growing chorus of calls for him to step aside. Paul Johnson has that part of the story. This has been a campaign like no other in the midst of a global pandemic. In 2020, we've often talked about the new reality. B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson now has his own version that's sinking in. As the results stand tonight, the NDP are clearly ahead and it appears they will have the opportunity to form government. You go to games, you lose the race, you're getting a new team leader. So now who will the new team leader be? B.C. Liberal candidate Alexa Liu was first out of the gate to hint at Wilkinson's ouster as leader before the night was even over. Andrew Wilkins' future will be decided by Andrew Wilkins. Jazz Johal was one of his party's most high-profile MLAs. While he's more nuanced about the immediate future of his leader, he says renewal is a certainty, and that means new faces with new ideas. Climate change, housing and affordability, health care, education. We have slowly been seeding ground on these issues to other political parties. And that's one of the reasons why last night happened. UBC political scientist Max Cameron says irrespective of leadership, the BC Liberals were up against a sea change in provincial politics. This means that uh, the NDP has begun to occupy the centre of BC politics and if the Liberals want to come back from this, they're going to have to come up with a strategy for themselves to retake the centre. I'm surprised at his non-concession speech. Veteran B.C. political strategist Bill Thielman believes Wilkinson is certainly finished as leader. And he has this observation about his historic adversaries. The fundamental question for the B.C. Liberal Party is trying to find a balance between fiscal conservatives and social conservatives, between federal liberals and federal conservatives. And they had that under Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark. It's a difficult balance to, cap, to keep. They lost it under Andrew Wilkinson towards the end, and particularly in the middle of the election. And until you resolve that fundamental problem of which way you're going to go and how you're going to find that balance, you're going to have difficulties. Thank you. Exit stage left. Was this our last glimpse of Andrew Wilkinson as B.C. Liberal leader? In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. B.C. Liberal incumbent Jane Thornthwaite lost her North Shore seat. NDP's Susie Chen ended up taking North Vancouver Seymour with 45.3%. It comes after Thornthwaite made sexist comments on video about NDP North Vancouver Lonsdale candidate Bowen Ma. Voters elected former MP Nathan Cullen in the northwestern riding of Stikine, despite drawing criticism for mocking the nickname of an Indigenous candidate in a neighbouring riding. Before joining the B.C. NDP for this race, Cullen was a four-term federal New Democrat MP representing Skeena Bulkley Valley. There may be some changes here and there, and 
um, we're being cautious as well and, and understanding the results that came out of Stikine. It's a, it's a big, vast riding. We didn't have as many mail-in ballots as other places did. So it feels pretty confirmed. And I'll just, you know, Monday morning or well, tomorrow morning, I'm getting on the road. The work starts right away. And the BC NDP is leading in Chilliwack, Kent, where ex-BC Liberal candidate Laurie Throness chose to run as an independent. With mail-in ballots yet to be counted, Throness is trailing NDP candidate Kelly Patton by 195 votes. Throness registered, re- resigned rather from the BC Liberals nine days before the election after intense public backlash over comments he made at an all-candidates debate comparing free birth control to eugenics. Thrust into an election just a week after winning the B.C. Green Party leadership, Sonia Furstenau and her party are poised to make history. The Greens retained two of three Vancouver Island seats and expanded their reach across the water, where it appears the party is about to gain its first seat on the mainland. Kristen Robinson has more. While the signs may be hard to find, West Vancouver's Sea to Sky is on track to go green. I'm just ecstatic to have been gifted the trust and confidence of the the people of this riding. Stretching from West Vancouver to Squamish, Whistler and Pemberton, the riding has been a Liberal stronghold since 1991. But with all ballot boxes counted, former Gibson's councillor Jeremy Valeriot has a 604-vote lead over the BC Liberal incumbent. It really says a lot about the that the the green message is resonating that the that it's uh, the the scope is expanding and i think it's an indication that uh, we are no longer limited just to vancouver island the greens lost former party leader andrew weaver's old riding of oak bay gordon head to the ndp but leader sonia firstino held on to her cowichan valley riding while incumbent Adam Olson was re-elected in Saanich North and the Islands. The NDP engineered this election to get a a majority and wipe out their opponents. They were half successful. While they may have their majority, British Columbians have returned green MLAs to hold government accountable. While caught off guard by the snap election, political scientists say Furstenau found her footing mid-campaign with the TV debate. She finished very strongly, which secured the two seats that they already had on Vancouver Island, and it looks like they've made a breakthrough in the Lower Mainland. The Green Party is running second in more than a dozen B.C. ridings, including the too-close-to-call Nelson Creston, where the Green candidate is trailing the new Democrat by 934 votes before the mail-in ballot count seems like uh, they were able to uh, stick to their core message of uh, action on environment and holding a government to account and acting as a bit of a conscience for the province. Overall, the B.C. Green Party scored 15.3% of the popular vote. Kristen Robinson, Global News. For more on the fallout of Decision BC, Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us. Uh, Not taking a day off yet, are you, Keith? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Tell us what you think. Yeah, a lot of takeaways from this. Uh, Last night, uh, interesting, we called the election very early, even though we thought it was going to go on a long time. When we were done with our coverage by 11.30, that contrasts uh, what we were doing in 2017 when we were on the air till 1.30. A lot of uncertainty in 2017, not much uncertainty last night. But here's three takeaways I have. 
Uh, the NDP historic breakthrough in Richmond, North Vancouver, Seymour, and the Fraser Valley, unheard of up until uh, this election. The BC, BC Greens proved that 2017 uh, election result when they won three seats. It was no fluke, as uh, Kristen po uh, Robinson reported, uh, looking to pick up a seat on the mainland for the first time. And again, as Paul Johnson reported and Jazz Johal said in that story, the BC Liberals need to renew and diversify, and that is a big priority for them, and they're likely going to have to change their leaders. I can't see Andrew Wilkinson sticking around, so John Horgan making the point uh, in Grace Key's story, very interesting. Now with a the majority, they have a, a chance now for him to travel the province and reconnect the NDP with the regions out there because right now they're very strong in Metro Vancouver, but they have to get stronger elsewhere. Uh, but the next four years looks like pretty smooth sailing, and it was a gamble. It's a gamble that's paid off big time for the NDP and not so much for the B.C. Liberals who are in a world of hurt and pain right now. No kidding. All right. Thanks so much, Keith. Outgoing Finance Minister Carol James is among the 16 MLAs retiring from B.C. politics. This morning, she posted a farewell note on Twitter saying it has been a privilege to serve. She was first elected as the Victoria Beacon Hill MLA in 2005 and won three subsequent elections. James announced last March she had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. For the latest results on all the writings, head to our website, globalnews.ca slash decisionbc. With the election campaign over, a major B.C. public hearing can resume tomorrow. The Cullen Commission into Money Laundering had been scheduled to start again on October 13th, but of course was delayed after the writ was dropped. Commissioner Austin Cullen said the delay was in order to preserve the independence of the commission and to protect the integrity of the electoral process. And the B.C. Liberals would likely be the party most on the defensive over any possible revelations that emerged from the hearings. The NDP government launched the inquiry after reports of illegal cash were f was flowing to fuel the real estate, luxury car and gambling sector. The military has joined a major search for a missing father and son near Pemberton. 48-year-old Peter Oleski and 21-year-old River Leo went on a mushrooming expedition in the Upper Mackenzie Basin Thursday morning and were last heard from that afternoon. Their vehicle, a red Dodge Ram pickup truck, was found near the upper paragliding launch Friday morning. Pemberton RCMP and several search and rescue teams are assisting tribal police in the search for the two who are members of the Lilwat Nation. A cormorant helicopter from 442 Comox has been brought in as well. Temperatures in the area are due to plummet into double digits. Lions Bay SAR crews say it is lucky two lost hikers who needed help late yesterday were found safe. The hikers missed a turn off the Lions Trail and ended up lost in the snow on Harvey Basin Trail. They were ill-equipped with only cotton clothing, which was so frozen solid. Volunteers hiked over slick terrain to reach the hikers and give them a change of clothing before walking them out. The pair had not left a trip plan or told anyone where they were going. Coquitlam RCMP are trying to track down a 15-year-old patient living at the Maples Adolescent Care Center uh, at Riverview Hospital. He's unlawfully at large. Police cannot release a photo of Nolan Godron because of his age, but he is described as having wavy black hair and brown eyes. He is five foot six inches tall with a skinny build and was last seen wearing a black hoodie and gray sweatpants. He was riding a longboard and has a gray and green helmet. He left the, the facility without consent on Saturday afternoon. Mounties say he may behave in a way that presents a risk to himself or to the public. 
If you spot someone who matches the description, please call Coquitlam RCMP. A Surrey family is homeless tonight after their house caught fire overnight. The fire broke out just after midnight near 126 A Street and 70 A Avenue. Smoke and flames could be seen coming from the roof. Firefighters say strong winds hampered their efforts to control the fire. The eight people inside the, at the time all managed to get out safely, but the home was extensively damaged. No word yet on how the fire started. The Chilliwack Fire Department says an early morning fire at a home in the 9200 block of Charles Street was deliberately set. When firefighters arrived at about 3 o'clock this morning, they found the back porch of the two-story home fully engulfed. They quickly knocked it down, but the main floor has smoke and water damage. The residents, a family of five, got out safely. An investigation is underway. Vancouver police now say a man has been taken into custody in connection with a minivan that caught fire in a parking lot at City Hall yesterday afternoon. Firefighters were able to quickly put the flames out. No word on possible charges. Kelowna City Councillors will have to decide whether to scrap or maintain a holiday tradition given the constraints of the pandemic. Every year, nearly 25,000 skate people skate at Kelowna Stewart Park. But this year, with gatherings of more than 50 not allowed, reopening the rink this year poses a dilemma for council. Staff is making three recommendations. First, the honor system, where users self-monitor for symptoms. Second, creating a fence and having skaters book time slots with skating patrolled by city staff. The third option, not opening at all. Our most recent citizen survey has shown that 48% of residents have actually increased their usage of our recreation facilities during the pandemic. So the way we open has to be done in a very sensitive way, obviously taking into account the provincial health officer's orders, as well as the community needing this equitable asset. The options will be discussed at tomorrow's council meeting. Another sign winter weather has, uh, well, winter has unofficially arrived, though it's just the weather here on the south coast. Metro Vancouver closed Grouse Mountain, the grouse, sorry, closed the grouse grind this afternoon and tomorrow because of unsafe icy conditions. Two other trails in the park are still open, but those attempting the BCMC are advised to use micro spikes and always leave enough time to finish your hike before the sun sets. A major announcement regarding two big players in the Canadian oil and gas sector. Synovus Energy is buying Husky Energy in an all-stock deal valued at $23.6 billion. The combined company will operate as Synovus Energy and will remain headquartered in Calgary. Officials say the transaction has been unanimously approved by the board of directors of both companies and is expected to close in the first quarter of next year it will likely mean job losses in the province. There has been a snag in the federal government's attempt to broker peace in the Nova Scotia lobster dispute. The man appointed as facilitator between commercial and indigenous harvesters says he's ready to open a dialogue between the two sides. But as Ross Lord reports, he's facing resistance from indigenous leaders. The past five weeks have been full of disturbing confrontations, including commercial fishers cutting indigenous trap lines and the suspected torching of a lobster pound that did business with First Nations fishers. 
To rebuild trust between commercial and indigenous harvesters, the federal government has appointed what it calls a neutral third party. We'll have to see if we can get people together. I mean, the ultimate goal would be to get as many people together and have a, a discussion at, uh, with, at a multilateral level uh, and to maybe hopefully come up with some resolve. When it comes to fisheries crises, calling someone in is politics 101. I'm trying to negotiate right now to get some understanding of what restraint means. But 20 years after a lobster dispute in Burnt Church, New Brunswick exposed opposing views over Indigenous treaty rights. Negotiators are back at square one, and the new appointee is already facing resistance. He's from Pubnico. He's a president of the university down there. You know, he's getting pretty thick with the fishermen. So um, for us, there was no unbiased decision going to be, you know, made or, or talked about. Surrett admits his objectivity could become an issue. Perhaps, but um, I'm not going to dwell on that piece. Uh, I've done a number of, lots of work in the past um, independently. This, for me, is not going to be any different. I have no intentions of um, sitting down with myself. Uh, I'll talk with anyone with that, but uh, right now our, our management plan is our main priority. And like I said, I'll put him in touch with our lawyers that can fill him on the, the information, our management plan, the treaties, whatever he's looking for. Chief Sachs says he's focused on separate discussions with Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan and with Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. Representatives of two commercial fishing groups did not immediately reply to our request for comment. It's unclear if adding an extra layer of discussions will help reach a common understanding or further complicate a convoluted dispute. Ross Lord, Global News. A land rights dispute in Caledonia, Ontario heated up today when non-Indigenous protesters showed up to disrupt a march by members of the Six Nations First Nation. We have to fight all the time for our, our rights. And this is our land. We need to keep cool heads, but we can't be intimidated either. A land claim dispute has driven a wedge between some Caledonia residents and members of the Six Nations who have halted construction of a new housing development in the area. For nearly 100 days, the Haudenosaunee community has been demonstrating on the land in question. The federal minister of Crown Indigenous Relations says her ministry has put in place a process to try to resolve the dispute. But former Ontario Regional Chief Isadora Day says this is an example of a number of broken promises and commitments from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal peoples dating back to the 1990s. There's another outbreak of COVID-19 inside the White House tonight. At least five members of Mike Pence's inner circle have tested positive for COVID-19, including his chief of staff, Mark Short, who's considered to be the vice president's closest aide. But the vice president is staying on the campaign trail, disregarding CDC pandemic guidelines. Jennifer Johnson reports. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is still on the campaign trail after Chief of Staff Mark Short and three other aides tested positive for COVID-19. According to Centers for Disease Control Guidelines, Pence should quarantine for 14 days after being in close contact with Short. But the White House Medical Unit has cleared Pence, classifying him as an essential worker. How is campaigning essential work? Well, there are the free elections are the foundation of our democracy, so I think campaigning and voting are, are about the most essential thing we can be doing. The Trump administration says Pence, the head of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, has tested negative for COVID-19, but more than 166,000 Americans have tested positive in just the past two days. 
we're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation. Why are we going to get control of the because, pandemic? But, because it is a contagious virus. But the Biden-Harris Democratic presidential team disagrees. They are pushing for mandatory masks and blaming U.S. President Donald Trump for not getting the pandemic under control. This is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of America. But President Trump is painting an optimistic picture for his supporters, despite the deaths of over 225,000 Americans. We're rounding the turn. We have the vaccines. We have everything. We're rounding the turn. Even without the vaccines, we're rounding the turn. It's going to be over. But with hospitalization setting records in over a dozen states, medical experts say the country is at a dangerous tipping point. These cases are going to continue to build. There's really no backstop here. I don't see forceful policy intervention happening anytime soon. Dr. Gottlieb insists Americans take precautions immediately to slow the spread as people are forced to gather indoors in the fall and winter months. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. Protesters clash with police in Poland's capital of Warsaw Saturday over new pandemic restrictions. The group of protesters included entrepreneurs, far-right politicians, soccer fans, and anti-vaxxers. Police said some protesters threw bottles and other objects at them and that they were forced to respond. Poland's president tested positive for COVID-19 recently. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. And we've got the animal rescue video that will have you holding your breath. We'll show you what happens right after Yvonne's forecast. But first, Alan Kabatov in Port Moody decorated his yard for Halloween with an ode to our provincial health officer. A skeleton of what's supposed to be Dr. Bonnie Henry standing at a podium wearing a pink blazer complete with blonde hair and pink shoes. Behind her is a skeleton of a healthcare professional with a sign reminding everyone to be safe this Halloween. I love, Yvonne, that they got right down to the pink shoes. Yes. Nailed it. Nailed it. Very good. I'm curious how they're giving out Halloween candy at that house this year. Yeah, I, they are. I wonder. Uh, I hope Halloween turns out to be a night like tonight. Yeah, it would be fantastic. Very chilly, though, uh, but we've had temperatures, record lows uh, overnight into the early morning hours, and I'll show you more in just a moment. But at a glance, this is the sunset this evening. It is spectacular. Uh, this is overlooking English Bay. It's cool out there. We're sitting at three degrees. We've got a light northwesterly wind at six kilometers per hour. Now, temperatures this morning, if you headed out early and you thought it was chilly, yes, record-breaking, uh, we were at minus 4.6, the old record, minus 3.3, and that was back in 1919, so over 100 years, and we had over 20 record lows, and here's a sample of just a few of them. For example, Cranbrook, 18.3, the old one, minus 17.2, and that was back in 1919. Williams Lake was also in that range, trail at minus 10, and Whistler this morning, kicking things off at minus six. It was chilly. It'll be cool once again tonight. We still got that Arctic air across the province and we're tracking some snowfall, some active weather across the northern half. But the wind chills overnight, It'll be cooler, especially across the central interior. I think we may even get into the minus double digits for our feels-like temperatures. But this is the next system that is going to push in across the province. It'll intensify, especially this evening and continuing to the early morning hours. Winter storm warning, that's what we're seeing in the white areas. And it is going to push in, starting off as snow, especially inland. It'll be heavy at times. But we're watching a warm front that's going to move in. And with that transition for the early morning hours, the potential is there to see the risk of freezing rain. North coast inland, there is also also freezing rain warning, and that'll be for this evening and into the early morning hours. So those are some of the amounts that we're looking at, 10 to 20 
will be the range for most areas. And that spot that's indicated in blue, north coast inland, Terrace, Stewart and Kitimat, all included within the risk of freezing rain. So we're watching that as the temperatures change and we've got that warm air that is going to push in. One area to note, though, for the mountain highways, the Pine Pass, a snowfall warning along Highway 97, 15 and up to 25 centimetres of snowfall through the morning hours tomorrow. Now, along the north coast, it'll be falling as rain. Heavy at times, very windy conditions, a few spots, seeing the gusts up to 40 kilometers per hour. Inland, it'll start off snow this evening, late evening and overnight, and then change over to rain, but there is that potential for the, for the risk of freezing rain. We could see ice pellets for many areas across the region. The northern half of the province, along the northeastern corners, the central interior will all be included within that. Most areas towards the south of the Columbia and the Caribou will be just looking at a few isolated flurries for the early morning hours. Whistler will start to see some breaks by the afternoon just above the freezing mark with the high of two and along the south coast we are going to see a bit of a blip in the forecast so late this evening overnight we have the chance of rain ice pellets or wet snow and that'll be for higher elevations and that it clears out quite quickly. I anticipate it'll be dry as we get in towards our Monday morning. We may see some sunshine, especially towards the afternoon. Cloud cover on Tuesday and a bit of a break from the cold. Colleen will be Wednesday, Thursday. We get back into the double digits with highs of 11 and 13 degrees. And a reminder that Winter doesn't actually arrive until December 21st. No, we're ways away, but it definitely feels like it. <laughs> no kidding. Thanks so much, Yvonne. Okay, we see a lot of animal rescue stories, but this one is a little more dramatic than most. A cat in a burning building. There he goes. Firefighters attending an apartment fire in East Harlem, New York, were able to encourage a cat to jump from the burning second-story apartment Saturday night. The fire is believed to have been an arson. Several people, including two police officers, were treated in hospital for injuries. Poor little kitty. Glad he's okay. Yeah, yeah. No, it's nice. Any comments, Barry? I know you uh, lost your cat yes, recently. Yes, we did. So yeah, that our probably... cat liked jumping off roofs, so I don't think you would have had a problem with that. <laughs> but, Not uh, afraid yeah, of heights. Right. Well, he didn't have to use up any of his nine lives either, right. which is nice, you know. <laughs> got to save those. No kidding. What do you got coming up? Uh, well, a lot of action going on right now. It's been, uh, of course, big NFL Sunday as usual, but the Seahawks are playing in prime time and uh, putting on a great show so far down in Phoenix. We have early highlights of that, and the World Series is going on. Dodgers and Rays, they had a wild one last night, and they're back and forth the end tonight, so all that coming up. Many of you have been listening to his work on this station for 25 years. In fact, it is on every single newscast. He's not an anchor or reporter. Rather, he's a musician and composer. As we celebrate 60 years on the air, Jordan Armstrong introduces us to the man behind our current music and shows us just how far we've come since the early days. Like Norm? Oh, right, Tony. Good night, Bernie. The basic elements of television are pictures and sound. And in the 1970s, the news hour's sound was also basic. Some would say cringeworthy. In the 90s, James Bowers came along and gave our music a punch. For a quarter century, James has been the composer for BCTV. Global BC. From Global BC, and Global National. An opening has to have an urgency and a, hey, Global News is on, come on. 
There's no band, no orchestra. James plays all the instruments and mixes them together in his recording studio on the Sunshine Coast. You know, I go through, I just keep ripping until I find something that, oh, that's the feeling. And you think, well, this needs to be dressed up in 250 different ways. And one of them is for obituaries, and one of them is for urgent breaking news, and one of them is for a happy morning feel. Come on, let's get moving. The current logo. That came to me when I was walking on a beach in Hawaii. He started out playing in rock bands. He was in a house band for a TV show when an executive asked if he could write theme music. Nearly three decades later, he's still doing it and can't imagine doing anything else. When they ask for 250 pieces of music, I'm taking one melodic logo and making it work in all of those different moods. It's impossible to get bored. And now you know the man behind the music. Barry's here with Sports and Barry, I remember the days way back when when you could drive down to Seattle and see a Seahawks game. You could still do it, but you'd have to just isolate for two weeks you'd when you have came to back. Stay That's a while, yeah. Just a exactly. small detail, no big deal. You just watch it on TV up here. <laughs> Thanks, Colleen. The Seahawks uh, are off to a five and zero start, but the collective records of the five opponents that they've beaten so far is nine wins, twenty three losses. But Seattle will find out how good they really are over the next five weeks when they play four divisional games and a tough Buffalo Bills team tonight. A prime time date with the four and two Arizona Cardinals, who are a dangerous young team with Kyler Murray at quarterback. Two of the most exciting QBs in the NFL, Wilson and Murray. Russell setting the standard on the very first play of the game. Rainbows one to Tyler Lockett, who makes an incredible one-handed catch. The professional NFL one-handed catch. What a grab. Seahawks in business. Same combination later on on the drive. First and goal. It's a touchdown pass to Lockett. Russell's NFL leading 20th of the season caps a 75-yard touchdown drive as the Seahawks go up 7-0. But Kyler Murray responds. He, too, makes a great throw downfield and a fantastic grab, too, by DeAndre Hopkins. Somehow adjusts in the air, gets both feet down, and gets the pylon for the touchdown. 10-7 Seahawks lead. Now 13-10. Seahawks looking for more, but Wilson is picked off that uh, flutter pass read nicely by Buda Baker. Looks like he's got a touchdown the other way, but here comes DK Metcalf with those big strides as he uh, chased him down like a cheetah on a gazelle on the Discovery Network. That was huge because the Seahawks' defense did not allow even a field goal as they get Murray on fourth down, but there's been a lot happening since then, and that didn't happen that long ago. 2014 Seattle, late in the first half, will have all the complete highlights at 11. Earlier, 49ers and Patriots, Jimmy Garoppolo making his first return to Foxborough since being traded three years ago to San Fran. Niners dominated the first half. Jeff Wilson with one of his three touchdown runs on the day. Misery for Belichick, 23-3 San Francisco at the break. Also a miserable day for Cam Newton. Three interceptions, although Julian Edelman usually catches everything. Patriots not used to this. They drop to two and four on the season as the Niners totally dominate. 33-6 the final. Worst home loss ever for Bill Belichick with the Patriots. Abbotsford's Chase Claypool and the Steelers at Tennessee. Both teams 5-0. and Claypool got extra attention from the Titans' defense because he's had five touchdowns the last two games. This was his only catch of the game, a quick pitch forward from Roethlisberger. Claypool fumbled it, recovered, ended up losing two yards, but 
Since he got all that attention on him, it opened up a lot for the other receivers, and the biggest beneficiary was Deontay Johnson, who had two touchdowns, including this one, as the Steelers jumped out 24-7 at halftime. But the Titans rallied in the second half. Ryan Tannehill hits A.J. Brown in stride. That's a 73-yard touchdown, and all of a sudden, Tennessee is cutting the lead. It was down to three in the fourth quarter. Steven Goskowski, the former New England Patriot, who never seemed to miss when he played with them with a chance to send it to overtime, but his 46-yarder is wide right, and the Steelers escape 27-24. They go to 6-0. A priceless reaction here from Ben Roethlisberger on the missed field goal. I think he was expecting Goskowski was going to make that. Packers and Texans, Green Bay coming off that 28-point embarrassing loss last week to Tampa Bay, and you knew Aaron Rodgers would bounce back, hits Jay Sternberger for the touchdown to give the Packers a 14-0 lead, and they never look back. In the third, Rodgers will find a wide-open Devontae Adams for a 45-yard touchdown. Four TD passes on the day for Rodgers as the pack bounce back. 35-20 over Houston as Green Bay goes to 5-1. and one. Buccaneers and Raiders from Vegas. Raiders were able to get most of their offensive line to pass COVID tests after one of them tested positive, uh, positive earlier in the week. But it didn't really matter because Tom Brady took care of that Raider defense as he goes deep to Scotty Miller, who makes a great catch. Dropped in perfectly there by Brady. It was 21-10 at the half. Fourth quarter, Raiders uh, down just four, but Brady will zip the four-yarder to Chris Godwin, and the Bucks run away from there. 45-20 the final as Tampa goes to 5-2. and two. Chiefs and Broncos from snowy Denver, defending champs, off to a 5-1 start. Second quarter, Chiefs defense comes up big. Daniel Sorensen will jump the route perfectly, picks off Drew Locke and takes it back 50 yards for the touchdown. 17-6 Chiefs. And then the special teams helping out. Byron Pringle decides he's going to take this one back two yards deep in his own end zone, but proceeds to take it back to the other end zone. 102-yard kickoff return for the touchdown. Chiefs didn't need Patrick Mahomes to do it all today as they romp past the Broncos. 43-16 to go to 6-1. The Whitecaps still have some work to do, but with three games left in their MLS season, they control their own destiny to get into the playoffs. Last night after a lackluster first half, the Caps rallied for a crucial 2-1 win over San Jose to move past the Quakes in the standings into seventh and give their playoff hopes a massive boost. Lucas Cavallini has been in the middle of the offense lately, but uh, others chipped in last night. Second half down 1-0. Ali Adnan, maybe not the greatest defender, but he's got some offense from the back, and that's a fantastic free kick. Ties it at one, and then six minutes later, Christian Dahomey, down the left side, a hard cross gets through the keeper's hands, and the Canadian Toussaint Ricketts taps it in. 2-1 Whitecaps. They hang on for the win. Vancouver 8-12 on the season, hosts Seattle next on Tuesday, but they're feeling they are right there for a postseason berth. The character that we showed tonight coming from a goal down and the, the fight we brought the whole game from start to finish was fantastic, and, you know, it's, it's credit to the group, credit to the mentality, and... Credit to the boys, we put out a shift today. English Premiership, first place Everton taking on Southampton. Everton, four wins, one draw coming in, but they taste defeat for the first time this EPL season. Southampton struck twice in the first half, the second from Shea Adams. Southampton win it 2-0. Everton uh, still first in the standings on goal differential over Liverpool. 
Formula One Portuguese Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton starting on the pole for the 97th time of his career, looking to break Michael Schumacher's all-time wins record today. Hamilton was third at one point, but worked his way back to the front on the 20th lap. Zips past Valtteri Bottas, and he wouldn't look back as Hamilton makes history, blowing away the field by 25 seconds as he takes his 92nd checkered flag to break the record. And another champagne celebration. He's had a lot of those. Canadian Lance Stroll was 20th today. Final round of the Zozo Championship from Sherwood Country Club in L.A. Canadian Corey Connors made a nice run today. Birdie at the 13th here. Connors, 666, finished tied for 8th at 18-under. Adam Hadwin and Nick Taylor way back, 63rd at minus 5. Both seem, I would have to say, a little mentally drained right now. Haven't played their best the last few weeks. Patrick Cantley had a great round. Past both John Rahm and Justin Thomas, who are in the final group. Cantley was in the second-last group. Ben's in his ninth birdie of the day at 15, posted 23 under, but Rom had a chance to tie on the 18th to send it to a playoff. This for birdie from 20 feet, but always right, never had a chance. Patrick Cantley wins his third PGA Tour event, the Zozo Championship in Los Angeles. And Game 5 of the World Series going on right now, Dodgers and Rays. Coming off that wild Game 4 finish last night where Tampa scored two runs with two outs in the ninth thanks to a couple of Dodger errors. Dodgers showing no lingering effects at the top of this game, though. Top of the first, Mookie Betts doubled, followed by this Corey Seager single to bring him in to make it 1-0. And then in the second, Jock Peterson goes deep over the wall in left center. Boy, the Dodgers with pop up and down that lineup. 3-0, but Tampa has closed the gap to 3-2 in the fourth. And whoever wins tonight will be just one win away from the World Series. So that's been exciting so far. No kidding. Thanks, Barry. Okay, we have a story here that, well, it's, it's interesting to watch. A young man in Concord, Massachusetts is turning heads by, well, by not having one. And it appears the Halloween enthusiast is spreading joy despite his frightening appearance. Just happened to look out the window to see the trees the other day and I saw a man riding a bicycle with no hands playing a guitar and I thought that's amazing how's he doing that and then on a second look I realized he didn't have a head. If you're in the Concord area and you see this, no your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. Under the headless horseman costume is Matthew Dunkel and despite the hard work involved, I'm pedaling, I'm going up hills, I'm going down hills. Uh, I'm, I'm exerting myself. I'm sweating profusely under this costume right now. He does this just for fun. I don't get paid to do this, you know. I, I get home from work, I'm tired, and I dust myself off and I put on the suit and I go out there and I dig into it. Matthew started wearing various costumes while biking back in 2015. Sooner or later, I, I started day after day, I started adding little things to it. You know, I'd uh, bring along a trumpet. I think this is really clever. One of my grandchildren saw him and just just absolutely freaked out, loved it. And as you can imagine, it does at times get a little dangerous. I have fallen, yes. Um, I have not had any serious falls as the headless horseman though. He's, he's sweet. It's up to the cars to avoid him. No yes. kidding. No head. No kidding. Exactly. That's the news hour for tonight. Jordan's here at 11. Stay with us now for 60 Minutes and that now infamous interview with Donald Trump. Have a good night.